This episode is being sponsored by our friends over at the Deadbolt Mystery Society who have an amazing monthly subscription box service that if you guys are fans of true crime and unsolved mysteries, you need to check out. I'm a huge fan of the Deadbolt Mystery Society, so I couldn't be happier to have them as our sponsor. Their boxes will have you playing the role of detective as you track down missing persons, crack the case on an unidentified body, or are hunting down a serial killer before it's too late. Right now, I'm knee-deep in solving their box simply titled Duel. This one has me tracking down a sinister group that calls themselves The Scourge, who are planning on having two of their members partake in a twisted contest that has them murdering six people. Inside the box are all sorts of clues and pieces of evidence, and one of the best things about these boxes are the QR codes you scan that show you additional videos, audio recordings, evidence, and photos. The reviews are in from people all around the world, and the Deadbolt Mystery Society has 4.9 out of 5 stars, according to over 260 independent reviews. Right now, they're offering 20% off your order when you use the code DEADBOLT20. So go to DeadboltMysterySociety.com and use the code DEADBOLT20 to get 20% off and become part of the Deadbolt Mystery Society today. Top 5 Creepiest Mysteries from Washington Better known as Washington State, this rugged patch off the Pacific Northwest is known for its glorious mountains, beautiful coastlines, and bustling cities. But Washington State also holds some of the creepiest cases around. These are the top five creepiest mysteries from Washington. Number five, Woods Home Mystery. It was like any other house in the large suburban area of Vancouver, Washington. Ed and Mary Woods moved into their new home in December of 1994. Together with their daughters, they thought it was going to be a fresh start, but it seems they didn't live alone on the property. For the first six to seven months, the Woods lived a normal life. Until one night, Mary began hearing a music box. Baffled as to where the music was coming from, She scoured the home before realizing it was from inside Ed's office. Mary went in there, still looking for a music box, but found nothing. Despite not finding it, Mary kept hearing the same sound played on several more occasions. But it wasn't just Mary who was hearing things. Ed was in his office with the doors closed when his doorknob began moving. He walked towards the door, thinking it was one of his daughters, but when he popped it open, no one was there. He checked everyone, but they were asleep in their bedrooms. Then, the apparitions began. Mary began seeing a woman in a nightgown with a scarf on her head. The woman would occasionally check in on the couple's daughters as well. Mary later found out the woman used to live in the home. She had died of cancer and once occupied the room where their daughters now slept in. It wasn't just Mary who experienced these things. Ed also had his fair share of apparitions. He once saw a man that they had dubbed the Riverboat Gambler, and there was also the apparition of a young girl in a pink dress. She would let out a quick giggle every time Ed and Mary would see her. Aside from these ghosts, the people in the house would always find things disappearing and reappearing, hear unusual noises, or see things float in the home. 
They invited a paranormal expert to the house, and in key areas, it registered spikes on his magnetometer, which he used to measure the electromagnetic frequencies in the home. The couple still have no idea what's causing their house to be haunted, but they don't seem to mind. They were once invited on a Larry King episode and said they've gotten used to living with the spirits. Number 4. Doyle Wheeler Officer Doyle Wheeler once retired from the San Diego Police Force due to stress. He worked for the department for 10 years and handled the San Isidro McDonald's massacre. This was a mass shooting in a San Isidro branch of McDonald's that happened in July of 1984. That massacre resulted in 21 people dying and 19 others who were wounded before police managed to kill the suspect, James Huberty. As the person in charge, Doyle told the SWAT team to open fire on the suspect, but for some reason, his orders didn't reach them right away. It took 25 minutes for the SWAT team to act. Doyle believes because of the delay, four additional people died. He blamed himself for it and suffered stress as a result, and this led to his retirement the next year where he moved to Washington State. But it turns out Wheeler would become involved in another controversial case. In 1985, Sagan Penn's car was stopped by San Diego police officers Donovan Jacobs and Thomas Riggs. An argument ensued since Penn and company were mistaken to be from a local gang. Penn, a martial arts expert, was attacked by the officers. He was beaten with a baton and kicked in what was believed to be a racially motivated attack. Penn defended himself and got a hold of Jacobs' revolver, He shot Officer Riggs, killing him and injuring a ride-along civilian passenger. He also wounded Officer Jacobs before running, but he later surrendered to police. During Penn's trial, in April of 1986, Doyle was subpoenaed by court to be a witness in the case. Officer Wheeler testified against Officer Jacobs, saying he was known to be aggressive and had racist tendencies, especially towards black men. He testified that Jacobs already had several violations for police violence. Other officers also backed him up and testified against Jacobs. Penn received two trials. He was acquitted both times. He was freed, but was perpetually harassed by officers in San Diego, and he later committed suicide in 1992. As for Doyle, four years after his testimony in the Sagan Penn case, he was living in retirement again. But in April of 1988, four men broke into his home. One threatened him with a gun, a second placed a rope around his neck, and a third he could hear was rummaging through his bedroom. They forced him to create a suicide note saying he lied about his statements in the trial. Then he was brought to the basement. One intruder then made a call before placing a pillow over Doyle's face and shooting him. Wheeler moved his head and the bullet grazed it. After the men left, Wheeler crawled to the next room and called 911. Emergency personnel arrived and saved him. Surprisingly, during the investigation, the police chief from San Diego asserted Wheeler faked the attack, but investigators were suspicious since one of the intruders was recorded calling the San Diego Police Department and asking for Officer Donovan Jacobs. Wheeler also noted one of the men to be an informant for the San Diego Police Narcotics Department, Officer Jacobs denied the allegations and claimed Wheeler faked everything. Witnesses, however, reported seeing four men on that day of the attack 
around Wheeler's home. The case eventually went nowhere, despite repeated attempts at investigating the matter. The two suspects Wheeler described have never been found. One had blonde hair and a double lightning bolt tattoo on his left hand, while the other had dark hair with a large pockmark on the left side of his face. Currently, they remain at large. Number 3. Kyra Cook Kyra Cook from Longview, Washington, couldn't recall what her life was like before making a fateful trip to the post office on September 8, 1986. She had lunch with a friend that day and went to the post office to drop off some mail. She left the post office around 2.15 p.m. What happened next would become a puzzle for Cook and police officers alike. At 3 p.m., Kyra woke up with a splitting headache. She was dazed and unsure of where she was. She didn't know her identity. With a terrible headache, she began walking to the park and crossed paths with an older gentleman. He said he would help her. The old man drove Kyra to a police station but left her half a block away and he didn't say who he was or offer to help her any further. Kyra met an officer outside and she told him her situation. She was taken to the hospital so she could be checked. There was a bump on her head and doctors believed she fell or someone hit her from behind. This was likely the cause for her amnesia. Kyra didn't know who she was, what happened to her, or who her family was. In an effort to identify who she was exactly, police printed her photo in the newspaper. After 24 hours, her parents came forward. Kyra stayed five days in the hospital and then went home, even if she couldn't remember her parents or family. At home, she didn't recognize anything, not her room or any of the items in there. Because of what happened to her, her family and friends say the Kyra they once knew was gone. The Kyra now is more reserved, thoughtful, and a lot calmer compared to the old Kyra. Her doctors believe her amnesia is genuine and that whatever caused it happened in just an hour. They think she was the victim of a hit and run or she was attacked as her money and other items were missing. After news of her predicament made the rounds, another woman came forward saying she was assaulted three times by someone in the park. Police noted the woman looked like Kyra in appearance. Authorities are also interested in looking for the unknown male who took her to the station. Although he's not a suspect, police would like to know if he was involved or had seen anything. Kyra later recovered a few of her memories, but as for what happened during that one hour, she still doesn't remember. Number 2. Stephen Harkins and Ruth Cooper The media dubbed it as the tube sock killings because the killer tied tube socks around the necks of the female victims. The first of the victims were Stephen Harkins and Ruth Cooper. The couple from Tacoma, Washington spent the weekend of August 10, 1985 camping around the forest of South Peace County. After the couple didn't show up for work the next week, though, they were reported missing. Several days later, Harkins' body was discovered by hikers. Nearby was the remains of their pet dog, and police believe Harkins was murdered while he was asleep. As for Cooper, it would take two months, in October of that year, before she was discovered. The first thing they found was her skull. After two days, they found her body. Her neck had a tube sock tied around it. An autopsy showed that she had died a violent death. 
but the killer wasn't close to done with attacking people. He decided to prey once again on another couple, Diana Robertson and Mike Reamer, together with their daughter, Crystal Robertson, who was just two years old. They had headed out to the forest of Pierce County to go camping. It was December 12, 1985, and nearing Christmas, so they wanted to look for a tree. Mike was a trapper there, so he was familiar with the area. But when evening came, two-year-old Crystal was seen outside a Kmart store by herself in Spanaway. That area was 30 miles from where they were in the forest. Crystal's grandmother saw her on the news. When she asked about her mother, all she said was, Mummy was in the trees. A search was done in the area, but they couldn't find the couple. It would take two months, when in February of 86, before Diana Robertson's body would be found. It was discovered half-buried near Mike's truck. Like the previous victims, Diana also had a tube sock tied around her neck, She was stabbed 17 times and there was blood on the truck's seat. What's notable is the sock was tied in the exact same way as the one found on Ruth Cooper. It wasn't until 25 years later in 2011 when Mike Remmer's skull was found, it was discovered a mile from where Diana's body was. Authorities couldn't tell his cause of death, so they can't rule out if he was a victim or died of other causes. Police were stumped on who killed the couple's But they had two theories, the first being that it was a serial killer who attacked them. The second is that Mike Reamer isn't a victim, but he is in fact the killer. Some theorized he killed the previous couple and later killed Diana before killing himself. The reason for this is that police uncovered Reamer had domestic abuse complaints against him. In fact, before his body was found, he was a person of interest in the killing of Diana and a warrant was issued for his arrest. Today, the same questions remain, though. No one knows if Mike Reamer was the killer or a victim. If he isn't, there could be a serial killer at large who's possibly hunted other victims aside from the couples that we know about. Number 1. Jake Bird Hex Probably among the most prolific and violent serial killers in America, Jake Bird flies relatively under the radar compared to the names like Ted Bundy, Ed Gein, or John Wayne Gacy. He was originally from Louisiana, although he can't remember where exactly. By 19, he left the state and made money working as a laborer, helping fix railroad tracks. Because of this, he easily moved from one place to another. Along the way, Bird racked up a criminal record committing burglaries and attempted murders in different states. However, it was a robbery gone wrong that eventually led to his arrest. On October 30th of 1949, Bird was in Tacoma, Washington, looking for work. He enters the home of Bertha Clutt and her daughter, Beverly Jane. Bird carried an axe he found in the backyard and entered through the back door. He stole some money, but encountered Bertha, so he killed her with the axe. Beverly came to her rescue, but she was also attacked. Their screams alerted two officers in the area who saw Bird, all bloodied and running from the home. Police gave chase, and then they caught him. When he was interrogated, Bird admitted to killing the Klutz. During trial, he was found guilty of the crime and sentenced to death. During sentencing, on December 6, 1947, Bird made a 20-minute speech saying he was never given a chance to defend himself as he was never called to the stand. 
He also questioned how his lawyers apologized to the public for defending him. Then he finished with what is known as the Jake Bird hex. His exact words are as follows. I'm putting the Jake Bird hex on all of you who had anything to do with my being punished. Mark my words, you will die before I do. Shortly before his execution, Bird admitted to having killed 44 to 46 people and said he wouldn't help police solve those murders. Although the authorities made it clear he wasn't going to get a lighter sentence, they gave Bird a 60-day leeway so he could make the confessions. As a result, the police filled 174 pages of Bird's possible connections to other crimes in different states. About 11 murders were confirmed, and Bird shared enough knowledge about the others he can be thought of as a suspect. Bird was then hanged on July 15, 1949. Jake's likely victims, however, didn't stop after he was killed. The infamous hex he uttered in court condemning those who had a hand in killing him seemed to have continued working for him. Within weeks after Bird's sentencing and trial, Judge Edward Hodge, who presided over it, died of a heart attack on New Year's Day of 1948. It was followed by an officer who took Bird's murder confession, then another officer who wrote down and created the initial report of the case. Then one of his prison guards passed away, followed by his former defense lawyer. All these men, five in total who were involved in Bird's trial and confession, died of a heart attack. No one knows whether Jake Bird's hex was the cause of it, but it certainly seems like it. So there were the top five creepiest mysteries from Washington. Washington State might be filled with gorgeous scenery and great cities, but like any beautiful place, there's often a darker side just beneath the surface. If you guys enjoyed watching this video, then please subscribe to our channel. We have new videos coming out every single Wednesday and Saturday for you to check out. I appreciate you tuning in, and I'll see you soon.